Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, had opportunity this week to actually attend Awana uh, as a parent. And uh, I got to tell you, first off, it's exciting to see the number of students that are here on a Wednesday night. It's really, really cool. Uh, it's also really neat to see the volunteers and see them interacting with the children and their love for the children. I had an opportunity to go down to uh, the lesson time, uh, which was incredible. I had an opportunity to uh, sit in on one of the small groups. I think it was the, the fourth and fifth grade small group. Really, really neat. And, and of course, I had opportunity to go to the game time. And uh, I have to tell you, in the game time, there was a game that we played, and I had to run backwards in the game. And uh, I, I have a greater appreciation today for what I ask my athletes to do uh, every week, because it's been a long time since I ran backwards. And, and not only did I have to run backwards, but I had to run backwards in a circle, um, around and around. And, and so I was really nervous, and I was just thinking, there was a lot of people up there, I'm like, Man, like, this, I could go down in any minute, but uh, thankfully the Lord kept me upright, and, and it was a fun night, it was a good night, uh, an enjoyable night. I know a prayer meeting going on as well at the same time, women's Bible study uh, going on as well at the same time, so just exciting nights here uh, on Wednesday nights if you have opportunity or occasion uh, to come out and join us. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to be a resident assistant. Uh, in a dorm. I believe it was before my sophomore, junior year of college. I'm, I'm a little cloudy on the year, but the more important reality was this. There was a man who God had brought into my life who had become uh, <clears throat> a very important relationship to me. He was, he was a mentor. He was an older man. He, he had uh, children that were older. He was married, and the Lord had allowed me to, to spend time with him, and he had began investing in my life. And the dorm that I was in, he was the resident director. And so I was going to be one of his four resident assistants. And one of the realities as a resident assistant is you go back to college actually a week early. And you spend some time while you're back at college uh, training and, and learning what you're going to do as a resident assistant. And I remember being so excited uh, to get to spend this extra time with Frank. I, I couldn't wait. And, and I went back and... And, and we started our training, and we had the opportunity during that week to go away for a weekend and to pray for the upcoming year. And so we were getting on a bus, and we were going to a retreat center, and I remember I, I, I looked at Frank, and he said to me, hey, save me a seat next to you on the bus. I'd like to travel with you. And then I knew it was about a 40-minute trip, and I was like, I, I was over the moon. I was thrilled. Man, Frank, out, out of all the guys, he, he wants to sit with me. And I, I, was, I was really thrilled, excited. I remember I got on the bus and I loaded, boarded, and got to the back of the bus and I sat down and I couldn't wait. He was finishing up some things down the dorm and he loaded on the bus and he came back and he got in the seat with me. And, and as the bus pulled away, I started talking to him like we talked almost every single day. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? You know, and just kind of the day-to-day -day interactions that you had. And about a minute or two into our discussion, he stopped me. And he said, you know, he said, you know, Chris, he said, I, I, I didn't want to sit with you on the bus today just to talk like we normally do. He said, I have some things that I want to share with you about your life that I believe God's showing me and he may use to teach you about ways that you need to grow. And I was like, oh. <laughs> not what you were wanting to hear, not the most exciting thing to hear. And I remember for the next 30 to 35 minutes, he had a talk, a talk with me. 
on the way to our prayer meeting. And, and I remember I felt like devastated. I mean, I, he was exposing things about me in my life that I knew to be true, but I had always kept hidden. I didn't want people to identify or to see, but he saw them. And he loved me enough to expose them to me in that moment. And I remember I was really upset. I was, I was actually angry, but the Lord began a work in my life uh, through that weekend in that, con in that conversation uh, that would have drastic impact even in my life today. And you know, God uses people in our lives very often to expose our deficiencies and expose our need. And in our text today, we're going to see a very similar encounter, a very similar discussion. There's a man, his name is Nicodemus, and he's coming to Jesus. And he's coming to Jesus with a great need. And I believe in the interaction, he's really, he has no idea what his need is. And so he's coming to Jesus just to interact with him, just to, to talk with him, to find out more about him. But Jesus is going to take opportunity in the moment to expose the great need that Nicodemus has. And so our goal today as we enter the book of John chapter 3 is to explore how Jesus exposes our need to be born again in order that we might come to believe and have life in his name. And we're going to do that today by meeting this man Nicodemus, a man who in darkness is for some reason drawn to the light. And we're going to explore how Jesus exposes his need to be born again we're going to see how Jesus identifies his inability to save himself and then how Jesus reveals his complete ability to save Nicodemus. Would you pray with me this morning as you turn to John chapter 3? Father God, as is the habit every week, we join together to study your word. Father, we know that your word is able to change us and transform us. And as we come to your word this morning, we're thankful for the powerful effect it can have in our lives. And so we pray that as we open this book this morning, as we begin to read from John chapter 3, that you would expose the deficiencies in our life. Lord, that you would expose our great need for you. And that we might leave here changed, transformed. And that you might use us to help others grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we closed uh, chapter 2 last week, there's this really, really neat verse at the end of chapter 2 that really leads in a flawless transition to the, to the beginning of chapter 3. And it's, it's this. It says, And Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And as we open up John chapter 3, we're going to begin in verses 1 to 3. If you have your Bibles and want to look down, we're going to see this flawless transition where Jesus identifies Nicodemus' greatest need. He knows what's in man. And as John chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, now Nicodemus is a man of great power and, and, and great influence. In the eyes of, of all the Jews, he would, have been, he would have been a man that we would have all looked at and said, Wow, well, there is a man who's really got it put together. 
There's a spiritual leader. There is a religious leader. Yet the story of Nicodemus, one of the truths it reveals to us is this. That we can be very religious people, yet not spiritual. And Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus. This, this interaction, it was, it was no accident. God had a distinct purpose for Nicodemus coming to Jesus. And Nicodemus, though he has all of the knowledge of the ruling and well-respected Pharisees, shows us what is truly in man in this account. Blindness, darkness, and unbelief. We can be religious and not recognize our own need for Jesus. And, and, and I find it interesting in this account, as Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it should be, it's not a surprise to us that it's dark. If, you know, Nicodemus, he's, he's trying to hide. And, and Jesus is not going to allow him to hide. He comes to Jesus at night. And in this, in our text today, really we're going to see six divisions. But in this, we find our first one. A man in darkness comes to light. A man in darkness comes to light. Now Nicodemus shows some initiative here. He's, he's wanting to get to know Jesus better. He wants to spend some time with Jesus uninterrupted. Uh, maybe just undeterred from all of the opinions and, and the wave of scrutiny that the Pharisees had laid upon Jesus. The Pharisees weren't convinced about who Jesus was. And Nicodemus isn't either at the beginning of this passage, but he wants to know more. And so turning away from his religious friends and moving away from the buzz of the Pharisees' views concerning Jesus, Nicodemus at night finds himself drawn to the light. And as he approaches Jesus here in our text, I think it's interesting that he actually compliments Jesus a little bit, doesn't he? Rabbi. Rabbi. It's, it's the word for... A teacher. And, and he says that Jesus is a teacher who has come from God. But if you notice, he says that not because of what Jesus taught. But actually he says it because of the signs and the wonders that Jesus had did. The problem with Nicodemus's approach here is that he truly doesn't yet believe Jesus to be the Messiah. By calling him rabbi, he's giving Jesus no more authority than any of the other teachers who would have been present in that day. And in verse 3, Jesus' response to Nicodemus affirms this reality. That although Nicodemus was looking directly at Jesus, looking directly at the Messiah, he had missed who Jesus was. And when Jesus says, you must be born again, in order to see the kingdom of God, he's exposing a deficiency in Nicodemus' knowledge, specifically relating to how Nicodemus understood the kingdom of God. Jesus, in his opening statement to Nicodemus here, is exposing Nicodemus' greatest need. As a powerful ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus wasn't a man who was used to having people talk to him this way. Exposing his need. In fact, Nicodemus may have been in a place where he hadn't recognized that he had need for a long, long time. In fact, Nicodemus would have been taught and trained to teach others that by keeping the law and that by belonging to the nation of Israel by birth, you would have had every right that would have been needed to experience the kingdom of God. This was not the case, though. 
And Jesus was going to expose this to him. The solution to the need of how a person comes to go to heaven was not wrapped up in the family that one was born into or the work that a person did while they were on earth. Recall the words that we read in John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Some of you remember. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so in verses 1 to 3, as Jesus is beginning this interaction with Nicodemus, he's saying, forget your credentials. You must be born again. Or another way to accurately read what Jesus is saying here is you must be born from above. Seeing the kingdom of God is something that can only be granted by God through Jesus. And Nicodemus, he would have been incredibly perplexed by this reality. This this would not have been something that, that would have landed on him lightly. His whole life he would have believed differently. His power, his position, his influence, his authority. In this moment, they meant nothing. It was a relationship with Jesus that would only allow him to see the kingdom of God. And so it should not be a surprise to us that in this moment, Nicodemus responds to Jesus in much the same way that many of us would. Think about it when when we have interactions with people and they expose things about us, like, like in the interaction I shared earlier about Frank, my, my, my first inclination was to be defensive. You know, they say there's, there's three words out there when we face insecurity or fear, right? Well, two words we talk about a lot, fight or flight, right? I like to add one, folly. Fight, flight, or folly. Sometimes we like to make light of the situation in order to make ourselves feel more comfortable. And so in this moment, Nicodemus feels very uncomfortable. Jesus has just exposed a deficiency in his knowledge and understanding of the kingdom of God, and he's just exposed a deficiency in his ability to have a relationship with him or to experience the kingdom of God. So this is very uncomfortable for Nicodemus. And so what does he do? In this situation, in this moment, he tries to make light of the situation. However, Jesus, he's about to dig in and truly expose Nicodemus' inability to save himself. So if you look down at your text, we're going to look at verses 4 to 8 of John chapter 3. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so this is Nicodemus' first question to Jesus. In in light of him feeling uncomfortable, trying to make light of the situation, trying to come to a place where maybe he can have some more control again and, and maybe take the discussion in a different direction, he makes a joke. How can a man be born when he is old? 
How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus' response here, it's, it's also a bit indicative of his position as a Pharisee. Here is a pragmatic and purpose-driven man who's used to taking matters into his own hands. He's used to being able to fix his own problems, to solve his own issues. And so right away he goes to the physical. Well, how can I do this? If, if no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, how can I be born again? I'm, I'm an old man. How can that happen? But the birth that Jesus is talking about here is not a physical birth. And that's the second division in our text. And it's, it's one we alluded to last week. Remember, we talked about last week a lot of times in the Bible. First we have the physical, then the spiritual. And, and the spiritual is always given greater emphasis and greater priority, but it often comes after the physical. And so first, Nicodemus recognizes and understands that he's had a physical birth. But what does his spiritual birth mean? What does it look like? And the Bible often uses division to communicate spiritual truth to us. Light and darkness, physical, spiritual. And so Jesus is going to move on here in our text in verse 5 to, to use two illustrations that represent the fullness or completeness of this new birth that Nicodemus needed to experience. And, and friends, it's, it's the same new birth that we need to experience as well. And the first illustration is this. He talks about water. And he uses water, and he uses water because it represents the physical. The ritual cleansing, the idea of being made clean and pure, a concept which would have been very important to the Jewish listener. And it should have taken Nicodemus, who he was a religious expert, it should have taken him back to what he knew to be true and what he had heard before in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, 25 to 27. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." I mean, this text should have come to mind as Jesus was talking about the need to be born of the water. The idea of being cleansed should have brought this to account. And Jesus goes on to further reiterate this concept in a way that would represent the complete fullness of the transformation. It wasn't enough to just be cleansed by the water. Yes, that was important to be pure and to be clean and cleansed by the water. But there's something more. One has to be transformed by the Spirit. One has to be transformed by the Spirit as well. When we're born of the Spirit, friends, the Spirit does the work of transformation on our hearts. And once again, here's Nicodemus as a religious expert, as an expert teacher of the law and the prophets. He should have known this, and, and, and it should have brought recollection of Isaiah's words into his mind. But he's missing it over and over again. If you look on the screen here, Isaiah 44 Verses 3 to 5. How does a religious expert miss this? Someone who had the Old Testament memorized, many of the prophets, much of the law. Verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. So this has both water and spirit. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flower streams. 
This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And, and name himself by the name of Israel. So here, within the first five verses of this interaction with Nicodemus, there, there's, there's two major truths that are uncovered. First, Jesus exposes Nicodemus's need and says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A man cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And second, unless a man is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A man cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he is completely pure and transformed by the spirit. Now, now, Jesus goes on here in verse 6 to further legitimize this point by explaining that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And if you're looking for the divisions in our text today, we said there's at least six. There may be more, but I've identified at least six in our text today. Here's another division. Flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. And I, and I had to believe at this point in the conversation, I, I remember my bus ride with Frank. And, and I, I remember the point where I realized that this wasn't going to be a feel-good story for me. That this wasn't going to be a pat on the back. Oh, Chris, you're such a great guy. You're doing such a good job. I just love you. That's why I ask you to be a resident assistant. I, I remember distinctly when I realized in the conversation that was not the thrust of the discussion and how I felt. And it was hard because I realized, oh my goodness, there's something incredibly deficient about me that, I, that the Lord needs to change in me. There's something wrong here. And I have to believe Nicodemus, he's shocked, he's, he's reeling, he's realizing the enormity of this statement and what it means for him personally. Here's a man, Nicodemus, uh, he barely knew Jesus. And in these moments, Jesus has exposed a great need in his life. And then explained to him, first he exposes the need, but then he explains to him, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about this need. And, I, and I'll show you, you have this need, but there's nothing you can do about it. And as, as a religious leader, a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have considered himself to, to, to be able to handle these matters. But Jesus was confronting him over and over again with the reality that there was nothing he could do. In our physical birth, friends, we are alive as a human, yet we find ourselves spiritually dead, totally depraved, un unable to come to Jesus on our own accord. We need the Spirit to regenerate us and bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It, it's interesting, as I was studying this passage this week, something hit me. Now, don't laugh at me, but I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to because I felt like it. I was sitting at my desk and I was like, oh, well, I experienced a physical birth. And, and it kind of hit me for the first time, like I experienced a physical birth. And, and I thought, well, everybody in the room today has experienced a physical birth. If you're sitting here, we've all experienced the first birth that Jesus is talking about. And you know, as I thought about that, there, we really didn't have much control over that birth, did we? <laughs> I mean, I was sitting at my desk and that reality hit me. I, I had about as much control over that birth as I do over the birth that's needed or that was needed, the second birth. 
And, and I don't know why. I, I mean, I'm saying it was Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. Why, for the first time, I realized that, the connection. We really don't have much control over either one of the births that we need to experience. Uh, yet God is gracious to us, and he draws us to himself. And here, for the first time in Nicodemus's life, perhaps he realizes that his relationship with God was unresolved. Stammering, marveling, looking at Jesus, astounded and befuddled. And, and Jesus, in our text, will now begin to ground Nicodemus in this new reality that's facing. And he moves to capitalize here on Nicodemus' amazement of his own inability by further illustrating it. He uses, he uses the wind. And, and this illustration shows Nicodemus just how much he was not in control of his spiritual birth. That was needed. And Jesus identifies three realities regarding the wind or the Holy Spirit to Nicodemus here in verse 8. First, he says, the wind blows where it pleases. In other words, we do not control it. We, we can't control the wind. It blows where it pleases. The Spirit works how he works according to the great will and the great plan of God. Second, he says this, you cannot hear it, but you can see it. The Spirit physically, we're, we're unable to physically witness the Spirit regenerate a person and bring them from spiritual death to life. I, I can't see that. Uh, we, we can't witness it. We can't truly know. I know the moment in, in my life I believe it happened. You can probably attest if you sit here today and have, have it ha had it happen. You, you can probably attest the moment it happened to you. But we really can't see it. The only thing we can see are the effects of that new birth. That's what we can see. That's what we can witness because a life that's been transformed by the Spirit, a heart that's been transformed by the Spirit of God produces what? The fruit of the Spirit, right? And so that's what we can witness. That's what we can see, the fruit of the Spirit. But we can't physically see the moment that the Spirit brings a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. Its effects are undeniable, but we cannot witness it with our eyes. Third is this, we don't know where it comes from or where it is going. There are aspects of the Spirit that are difficult for us to understand. You think about it, we can talk a lot on Sunday morning about the Father, and we do. And, and, and we can talk a lot on Sunday morning about Jesus, and we do. But, but the church throughout history has probably had the indictment on it that, that the, the, the Holy Spirit is the most difficult of the Trinity for us to grasp. The Holy Spirit of God is the most difficult one for us to wrap our minds around and, and for us to really be able to fully understand and grasp. And Jesus gives testimony to that here in his illustration to Nicodemus because we, we can't see it, we can't control it, we don't know where it's going or where it's coming from. It's difficult for us to understand. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We do not witness physically the act of the Holy Spirit regenerating an individual but we can and we should see the effects of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. The transformation should be apparent without us having to physically see the transformation taking place. And now at this point, I wonder where Nicodemus is. Having been driven to a point of complete hopelessness, as Jesus exposed his need, revealed his, his, his own inability, Nicodemus' own inability to meet that need, now he's going to move on to show him, to show Nicodemus 
how he is able, completely able, to meet his need. This is verses 9 to 15 of John chapter 3, if you take your eyes down to verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into the heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus's second question to Jesus, his first is how can a man be born when he is old? His second is after Jesus explains these things to him, he's confused, he's perplexed. How can these things be? And, and it really reveals to us how difficult the Pharisees had made the most simple realities regarding the Messiah. The, the reality is that Nicodemus had been giving all the information to understand this. He should have known and, and probably could have answered if, if there was Sunday school in the synagogue back then, Nicodemus, and he went to Sunday school. I'm thinking Nicodemus could have answered every Sunday school question exactly right. He would have had all the verses memorized, every sticker that you could have earned. Nicodemus probably would have earned. But we come to find in the text that knowing he did not know, always growing in knowledge as a Pharisee, but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. And, and essentially what Jesus is asking Nicodemus here is this. Are you a spiritual leader that does not understand spiritual things? Nicodemus. And really, quite honestly, what Jesus has done is he's taken Nicodemus' response, how can these things be, and he's turned it and directed it right back at him. Nicodemus, how can you call yourself a spiritual leader, but you don't understand the things of the Spirit? In other words, if, if you think me telling you that you must be born again is outrageous, I think it's even more outrageous that a spiritual teacher of men is so uninformed regarding the matters of the Spirit. And how are you, Nicodemus, to teach Israel the knowledge of God when you yourself don't understand it? As he moves to verse 11, Jesus says the knowledge that we see his knowledge as being perfect and complete. He says this, we speak of what we know and and we bear witness to what we see. The disciples, they had witnessed the work of Jesus And they had come to see him and know him by the testimony of his life. It was this same testimony that the Pharisees and the religious leaders and men like Nicodemus were rejecting. Friends, in our life, this is is something that's a reality. What we know confirms, should confirm what we see. And what we see should confirm what we know. When what we know is incongruent with what we see, confusion abounds. And when what we see is incongruent with what we know, confusion abounds. The works of Jesus, John chapter 1, John chapter 2, and the rest of the gospel, the works of Jesus are always confirming the words of Jesus. His works confirm his words, and his words confirm 
his works. He is a man of complete integrity. And this reality allowed for the disciples to know and to see Jesus for who he truly was. Nicodemus and the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were unable to understand, unable to understand Jesus for who he really was because they had not yet been regenerated or born from above. And here is a truth and a point of application for us, friends. The only way for us to make sense of the physical realities of this world and this world system is to be transformed by the Spirit. Friends, we must be born again. We must be born again. If, if, if we sit here today and, and we're confused and we're hopeless and we're motivated by fear, we're scared and we're insecure about the world around us and we can't seem to find traction and our feet are consistently slipping and, and we're struggling over and over and over again with the direction of our lives and where God might be leading us, uh, maybe a safe question to ask ourselves is, have we experienced this rebirth? Have we ever recognized, truly recognized our need for Jesus? Because friends, apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit in our lives, our attempts to understand this world, they'll be hopeless and they'll leave us frustrated because we can't apart from the Spirit. There's another division here. Jesus talks about the earthly and the heavenly. And he's using the earthly. He's using things of the earth to illustrate to Nicodemus these heavenly truths. And Jesus says, if I tell you these earthly things, Nicodemus, and you cannot believe, how will you believe when I tell you heavenly things? So we see light and darkness, flesh, spirit, physical, spiritual, earthly and heavenly. The Bible in this passage using division to teach us spiritual truth. And I find it interesting how in John chapters 1 and 2, Jesus' actions were always taking the minds of the disciples back to the Old Testament Scriptures so that they would understand them as confirming both His person and His work. And, and, and it's, it's ironic. These, these disciples, friends, we know they were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They weren't men like the Pharisees and the religious leaders who had been trained in the synagogues. This was not the reality of their education. Yet Jesus chose the foolish to confound the wise and the weak to rule over the strong. And we've seen Jesus in this short interaction with Nicodemus use images such as water and wind and spirit, which in Nicodemus' mind should have recalled the Old Testament scriptures, but he kept missing it over and over and over again. And when Jesus says, no one has ascended to heaven except he who has descended, we find perhaps the, the greatest imagery to an Old Testament passage in this entire context. And, and, and when I saw this this week, friends, it's the first time I ever saw it, but it really jumped out and grabbed hold of me. And I believe that this passage, when I looked at this passage, one of the realities that popped into my mind, can you imagine how great our God is? And think about when he gave this passage to the writer of Proverbs, our God knew that his son Jesus would one day be interacting with a man named Nicodemus in this very moment, in this very situation, and that the words that Jesus used should have taken Nicodemus back to this very passage, which is so relative, so relating so clearly 
to the experience that they're in right in this moment. It's incredible. This is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 4 and 5. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind? What illustration did Jesus use? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth, the earthly and the heavenly? Now, now look, isn't this next line could be just like Jesus is talking to Nicodemus face to face. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely, Nicodemus, you man, you ruler of, of, the, of the Jews, you Pharisee, you religious leader, surely you know. But he missed it. He missed it. The table was set. Dinner was on the table. All the food was right there. The meal was served. Nicodemus was sitting at the table. And for some reason, he was missing the meal. He was missing the meal. Face to face with the Messiah. And he was yet to see. And then in verse 5, this is beautiful. This takes us right back to John chapter 1, doesn't it? Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The disciples would come to find that out, wouldn't they? He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Friends, I, I don't know how Nicodemus missed it, but, but maybe we do know because maybe we miss it too, right? Um, if you have a testimony like mine, my testimony was that I was born and I was raised in the church. Friends, I, I grew up in a family that went to church every Sunday, every single Sunday. We didn't miss and, and yet I knew I could give every Bible verse. I could give every answer in every Sunday school class. Teachers would talk to my parents all the time about, oh, your son, he knows so much. I went to every VBS within a 15-mile radius of my home growing up. I mean, my summers were filled week one to week ten with VBSs every week. And yet it wasn't until I was 16 years old that Jesus exposed my need for him in a very real way where he drew me into a relationship with him and where I could finally call him my own. And, and, and this is a danger uh, for the church today, friends. The danger is that we could be like Nicodemus. Nicodemus believed that all of the things that he would need would have been taken care of. Yet he comes to find out in this one interaction that he's woefully needful. And in this, chapter 3, we get a glimpse into how Jesus reveals himself to people. Here Nicodemus is a skeptic, unsure of who Jesus is. He wants to find out more, so he comes and he asks questions. And Jesus doesn't dismiss him. He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't ridicule him. He doesn't even try to change his mind or convince him with lofty words or argumentation here. He uses illustrations from the Old Testament scriptures, the truth of God. And he uses physical illustrations from everyday life to illustrate Nicodemus' need to be born again. He goes about putting Nicodemus on a solid foundation from which he can correctly realign his thinking. And now as we near the end of our passage, Jesus will use what is perhaps the most direct illustration that one could regarding his identity and his ability to save Nicodemus. This is John chapter 3, 
verses 14 and 15. I want to read it again, and then we'll turn to the passage that it relates to. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And there's a significant question for us to ask ourselves today, friends. How is Jesus like a snake? Have you ever thought about it? I had a friend ask me that one time. And I, and I was like, I wanted to fight. You know, fight, flight, or folly. I'm a fight guy. And so I wanted to fight. I was like, Jesus is not like a snake. What are you talking about? I know Genesis. Jesus is not a snake. And he said, oh, my friend, he said, you're wrong. He said, Jesus compared himself to a snake. I said, you're lying. He would never do that. And then he took me to this passage, and I said, you're right. <laughs> I'm wrong. He did. Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Friends, this is powerful. From Mount Or, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I don't want to say that that sounds like some of the things I hear in my own home sometime, but <laughs> my children are here this morning. I'll wait to throw them under the bus till second service. <laughs> then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. So that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God had rescued the people from Egypt and they were not thankful. They were wandering around the wilderness. They were getting impatient and angry, complaining, murmuring, speaking out against God and the leaders that he had given them. And there's a few observations here. The first is this. The snake was only for those who had been bitten. It was not a way to protect people from getting bit. And friends, as we sit here today, we know that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins, or were dead in our trespasses and sins, according to the ways of this world. And the snake on the pole, again, it was, it was for those who were bitten. We were all bitten. And the snakes that were in the camp were sent by God. They were God's just punishment on the people for their complaining, for their ingratitude, and their rebellion against Him. And in an ironic twist... God chooses to rescue his people from his own judgment on them by making the curse, the snakes, into a symbol that would become their cure. The snake on the pole. And all that the people of Israel needed to do to be saved from God's wrath was to look at or to see the snake on the pole as it had been lifted up over the people. God provides they're the, the solution for their problem. And here within, friends, we find a paradox. The curse became the cure, and our cure bore the curse. And that is a reality for us in the church today. Jesus, our cure, bore the curse, our sins. 
so that we might have the opportunity or the ability to be born again. And as a bronze serpent would hang from the pole and all who saw it would come to be free from the poison bites and their soon coming death that would have resulted, so would Jesus hang from a cross to cure us from the poison of sin and free us from our penalty of death. The cross, friends, of that day was a symbol of humiliation. Yet for us, for those that know Jesus, for those that have been saved by God and have a relationship with Christ, we come to see Jesus on the cross as exalted on high above all the earth. Friends, in verse 15, we come to find that the result of this birth from above is that Jesus uses it to secure our eternal life. And so our question may be today as we close this text, how should our lives look in light of this reality? And, and, and it's, it's clear to us today, um, our greatest need is the same need of Nicodemus. We need Jesus to reveal to us, expose to us our need to be born again if we haven't yet experienced it already. And there's an interesting reality in this world, and I've said it before, but I'll say it again and again and again. We all share the two greatest problems in life. And you can go out into this world and you can ask a lot of people what their two biggest problems are, and they're going to tell you a lot of different things. But when we get it down to the, to the, to the clearest surface we can get it to, it's sin and it's death. That's it. But, but along with that, we also share in the same solution to those great problems. And the same solution that we share is Jesus. That's our need. Our greatest need in this life, our greatest need in this world, as we go out of this place today, the, the name that should be bursting forth from our lips, if anyone sees anything glorious or magnificent in our life or good in our life, should be the name of Jesus. Because we, we, we need to know that without Him, we can do Nothing. And if you sit here today and today's the first day that you've ever recognized your need for Jesus, Jesus is drawing you to himself. And you should respond in faith today and be born again. If Jesus is revealing himself to you in this way today, the Bible says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And, and if today you've sat here and you've realized, man, I've, I've, I've grown up. I, I remember when, I, when it hit me. I remember. It, was, it had to be as stark evidence as when it hit Nicodemus. And we don't know when that was, but, but I believe Nicodemus came to know Jesus uh, from further testimony in Scripture. But, but if we sit here today, and, and that's today's the first day Jesus has brought us to a point where we recognize that need. I'd love to talk to you. I know one of our elders would probably love to talk to you. I know any one of our staff would love to talk to you. And we'd love to give God the glory for that and celebrate that with you. Find us. Find, find me after service today. I don't care if there's a line of 20 people. I'll stand and talk to every one of you and celebrate it with you because it's an incredible thing. For those of us that have already experienced that new birth, for those of us that sit here and we are confident in, in that reality of our salvation and the new birth, here's a question. Are we thankful? 
Are we thankful? You know, that Jesus would have exposed this to us. Why? That Jesus would have called us and drawn us unto himself. Why us? And, and do we live that thankfulness out every day in our life? That we're just thankful that Jesus revealed himself to me. And revealed my need for him. And does the measure of our thankfulness as our team prepares to come this morning to lead us in a closing song. Does the measure of our thankfulness and the measure of our faith motivate us to love others enough to tell them that there's a better way? And is it causing us to grow in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other because of the great love that He's shown us? Father, thank You for this account of Your Son and Nicodemus. Lord, thank You for showing us that we have a great need. Thank You for causing us to see, Lord, that we're unable to resolve that need in and of our own strength. And Father, thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus, to resolve that need for us, to save us from sin and death, to hang on a cross that we might see, that we might look, and that You might cause us to be saved. Would You give us faith today to believe? Would You give us strength to love and to share? In Jesus' name, Amen. As you go today, might you go with the assurance that you've recognized your need and that Jesus has taken care of that need for you, that He's resolved your problems of sin and death. He's drawn you into relationship with Him. And if you go today and you're unresolved in that relationship, I'd love to talk with you. An elder would love to talk with you. Let us pray with you before you even leave today. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you next time. Take care.